Well, this has been a beautiful morning of celebrating baptism, of gathering to sing together as God's people, of giving uh, of our offerings before the Lord, encouraging one another. Um, we, this, these are just times that we, together as a church family, uh, we really, really treasure these. We, we see God at work amongst us. We look to him in the week ahead. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot going on around here. You'll you recall, uh, Eric mentioned uh, the fall festival that's coming up. I want to encourage you, please be sure to be a part of that. That's really an opportunity for us to care for the community around us and to be a gospel beacon and to take a cultural thing that's happening already and to, to really be um, used by God to touch lives. And so uh, be sure to be a part of that. The other thing I want to draw your attention to would be on November 6th, uh, we're having a special congregational meeting. And uh, so that's Sunday, November 6th. It's coming up in a, in a couple weeks. And we'll be giving an update on a proposed uh, building project. And we'll also be giving you an opportunity, the church family, to vote on that. And uh, we want to be a good steward of the campus that God's given us here. And so that's, you'll, you'll get more details in the weeks ahead. Uh, but be sure to, to make it to that on the evening of November 6th. You know, in our culture today, there are many things that we can enjoy together as people. But one thing that just stands out is sharing a meal together. I mean, something, there's something about that, isn't there? There's something about having friends and family around a table and sharing food. And it's a, it's a place where, uh, you know, this isn't something where you just kind of do it in a mechanical way, right? You don't go, okay, it's time to eat. Walk to table, sit, you know, put food down. You know, that, that's not it. It's a very personal thing. It's a, it's a time of warmth. It's a time of sharing. It's a time where, where stories are exchanged. It's a time where we get to know each other. It's a time when we can share our burdens together. It's a time that we can rejoice together. And so the dinner table is a place where you find hospitality extended. It's a place where conversation is experienced. And, and, and meals really do carry a deep value for us as people. Uh, in the city of Corinth... Uh, where we find ourselves in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the meal really was a place for showing social status. So there, uh, it was sort of a, a picture in many ways of the culture as a whole, where, where people would uh, want to show how great they were or how prominent they were or, or how much influence they had. And, and so when we have the Lord's Supper or communion put in contrast with that, we find that it really was designed to take that cultural norm and flip it upside down. That's what it was there for. Isn't it beautiful how the gospel does that? Right? Jesus comes and he says, you want to be a great leader? Good. Put yourself beneath everybody and serve them. Uh, you know, we've talked about this in weeks past. You know, husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. How do you do that? By giving yourself up for her. Yes, you're leading, but it's flipped upside down. And here with the meal, it was the same thing. The supper was designed to show something so radically different from the culture around it. It was intended to show a different kind of community with a different set of values. It was there to, to show the gospel in a meal. And it was to describe and depict the gospel-shaped community. The good news about Jesus transforms everything about us. And so because of that, uh, it was a very particular picture that the Lord was after when he gave the Lord's Supper. 
And as much as today, you know, there might be ways in which as Christians, we might use things like retreats or conferences to gain kind of a gospel renewal in our lives. And by the way, those special occasions, those aren't bad. That's great. We can do that. But we need to realize that the Lord's Supper was given to God's people to regularly tune our hearts to him, to regularly help infuse us with a deeper understanding and a greater appreciation of the gospel. The Lord's Supper really is to be a gospel feast that we are to enjoy. And when we experience that vertically with the Lord, it changes everything about horizontally, how we relate to one another. But here's the thing. The church in Corinth in the first century there, they had a big problem. And the problem had to do a bit with the culture around them. Uh, D.A. Carson points out that the, in ancient Rome, uh, the Roman culture carried out life on a 10-day week. The Jewish culture carried out life on a seven-day week. And so in light of that, when, when Christians would meet on the first day of the week, because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. By the way, we're gathered here this morning on this day. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. But you can see if the, the culture around you is on a 10-day week and you're on a seven-day week, that first day is going to fall on different days throughout the 10-day Roman week. And that meant you were going to be competing with other things, with other events. And, and, and so what would happen is you would need to meet either really early in the morning or you, need to, or you would need to meet at night. Because especially if it's during, quote unquote, part of the work week, well, you're not going to meet during that. So it's going to be early morning or in the evening. Well, if that was the case, then you could see how the church in Corinth would face some pretty practical challenges. We get those who were independently wealthy, they could show up whenever they wanted to. Oh, middle of the afternoon? No problem. Oh, you want to meet around, you know, right before the evening time? Sure, I can be there. It wasn't a big deal. And they could obviously show up with, you know, some really nice food. You might think of it along the lines of, well, they went and they didn't just go to, you know, Subway. You know, they went to Ruth Chris, all right? They got the good stuff. They'd get it to go. They'd bring it there for the meal portion of the service. Uh, and, then, and then you might have others who maybe they were the independent business people. And, and they also would have more freedom, right? They could, they could close shop up early and they could come. And then you would have the freedmen or what would be known as ex-slaves and workers and citizens. They weren't bound and they might be able to get there, you know, more easily, about 7 p.m., let's say. But then you would have the slave. And by the way, slaves, that was probably the largest population in the Roman Empire. And, and when could they get there? Well, that would actually depend on what kind of slave they were because in the ancient world, slaves could be all kinds of things. They might be private tutors, especially if they were educated. Uh, and probably they'd be able to have a little bit of time to get off earlier. Uh, other slaves would be manual laborers. And so you know, maybe they were doing their job, but once the manual labor was finished, they could come, but they'd have less freedom to do that. And then, and then others would have even less freedom. They might be a, a house slave, in which case they were probably serving dinner to, to the household before they could leave. And so possibly those that were on the lowest end of that kind of social strata, those were at the lowest end, they would probably not be able to get there until very late. Most likely they would have very little to eat. They couldn't bring much of anything at all. And so what's happened then, if you can picture this, is there's the evening, there's the church at Corinth. 
The wealthy have already been there and those higher up the social strata have already been there and they've probably brought food of various kinds and now what's happening is those who have less and those who have less, less freedom and less ability to, to show up when they want to uh, come and they don't really have much of anything. And then what, what's happened is now, you know, the, the Lord's table comes about after that meal and you have some who are hungry, you have others who are fully fed. You have some on the wealthy side who probably have drunk so much wine that they're kind of drunk by now. And this is supposed to be the picture of that radically different community? <laughs> Sounds to me, Paul's going to say, that you look just like the world around you. Not much distinctiveness. You're just fitting in. And so that's the biggest, biggest tragedy of it all. The Lord's table is to be the center point of Christian unity and a celebration of God's grace for all people. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter what part of the social strata you are come out of has nothing to do with anything. Everyone is the same. Everyone is even and equal before God, a recipient of God's grace, a recipient of the gospel. And sadly, the Lord's table, that is to be the center point of displaying those beauties of the gospel, had actually instead become a point for further division amongst God's people there. And so Paul continues in the letter of 1 Corinthians to deal with, with this situation. He's, he's been talking about the Corinthian church gathered. And he's been talking about different struggles that they've had in the gathering. And now he comes to their struggle with the Lord's table. And so we're going to pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Um, out of reverence for God's word, would you please, after you turn there, open or just stand up after you turn there and follow along. As I read this, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, It's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord... That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, sorry, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 
But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the rest of the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you in your grace would open our hearts to hear your word today and that it wouldn't just be out of empty habit, that we wouldn't just sort of go through the motions of another Sunday, but that instead by your grace as your spirit is at work through these words that he's penned, that we would come to see you in a deeper way, that we would even come to understand the Lord's table in a fuller way. And that as your people, we would glorify you in the way we partake of it together. That it would be that picture of the gospel, a radical, new, different community. That it would be a gospel feast celebrated for the good of your people and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So as we go through this passage today, we're going to see that we must come to the Lord's table with reverence and joy because of several things. And this idea of reverence and joy, those two things go together amongst God's people when we gather. I think sometimes we think of reverence like, oh, reverence, that must be like, you know, reverence. That's not it. No, it's reverence, as in we're in awe, as in we see what God's done to rescue sinful people like us. And we go, huh, whoa, we're taken aback. And then joy. Why? Because Jesus really did conquer death. He's alive. He's risen again. And so because of that, as his people, we have beyond great hope. So we want to hold on to those two things. And yet there are some things that would get in the way of this, as Paul describes here for us. And so we're going to see that. We need to come to the Lord's table with reverence and joy because of, first of all, the distortion of God's grace. That's what's happening here in Corinth. And we see that in verses 17 through 22. Really, what was happening in terms of the gathering at Corinth was, was a full meal was a part of how they gathered. Uh, it was a type that would be called a love feast. We see that in Jude, verse 12. We see that in 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 13. But what happened, it was, as I described a little bit before, what happened in Corinth was this idea of a love gathering became anything but that. A love feast was not loving. Wealthier members, clearly, they would have the most food. And, and so as much as this could have been a marvelous expression of Christian love, it wasn't. As I mentioned, the poor would likely have to finish their work before they could come. And, and, and slaves would have a very difficult time even arriving at the right time, most likely. And the rich didn't wait. They had their little cliques and they would gather. And so the food would be gone before the poor even got there. And, and that's why Paul will say one remains hungry and the other gets drunk. So there's a sharp contrast here between the hungry poor lacking even necessary food and the drunken rich on the other side. There was no sharing. In other words, there was no actual communion happening. 
And you might be able to even see this in sort of the way a home would be set up in, in a first century context. So that would be what a, what a home would typically look like. Most likely the church at Corinth was meeting in a house somewhat like this. So you can see around the outside, there are various rooms. And then in the center area, there's a, a kind of a large outdoor patio of sorts. And so if you could picture for a moment, if the wealthier are the ones who are arriving first, likely they would be inviting into the, invited into the dining area, which would then leave the outer area for, quote unquote, everybody else. So not only are they not sharing food together, but very likely they're in different portions of the home even. And now we have the social strata of ancient Rome being depicted in, of all places, the Lord's table, as opposed to, again, what God intended, which was to take all that and turn it upside down as a demonstration and witness of, of his grace. And so Paul rebukes them. And man, is this a bold rebuke. I mean, look at, look at verse 17. In giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Why is he saying that there? Well, earlier on, he had praised them for holding to the traditions that he had given them. He said, generally speaking, you all have done well. And then he comes to this and he goes, I am not going to praise you. And remember, by the way, this is being read to the church at Corinth. This, is, this letter was read. So you can kind of imagine them sitting there going, oh, seat's getting a little uncomfortable here. And then he goes on to say, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. In other words, when you gather as God's people for the Lord's table, you know what's happening? It's worse than it would be if you hadn't gathered at all. In other words, Paul's saying, you might be carrying out this thing called the Lord's table, but this much is obvious from the way you're carrying it out. You don't get it, and it's not sinking in, and it's not making any difference in your life at all. There's an ancient writer named, named Lucian, and he, he kind of describes this painful picture in a very vivid way. Here's what he says, quote, you eat oysters fattened from the lake while I suck a mussel through a hole in the shell. You get mushrooms while I get hog funguses. Golden with fat, a turtle dove gorges you with its bloated rump, but a magpie that's died in its cages is set before me. Unquote. That's what he actually wrote. That, that's a guy from that, that season. So you can see the contrast, the difference. This is a fractured community. A, a community where no one ought to get leftovers no one ought to get scraps. The beauty of the gospel, of what Jesus has done, is to overcome every barrier. But that's not what was happening here. Distortion of God's grace. Now, now for us, how do, how do we see this and apply it here? Now, granted, we don't uh, commemorate the Lord's table in the exact same way. Uh, we focus in more on the ordinance itself. But the reality is, is that idea of favoritism is something that we've got to be really careful about. You know, really careful about. Uh, when we gather on a, on a Sunday morning, for example, are we prayerfully going, Lord, how can I be a blessing to the people around me? How can I touch someone's life, talk to someone, encourage them, find out how to pray for them? Are we looking for those opportunities? Or is it more about me? Am I just coming here for other reasons? Now, 
please know, when we gather, we do get so much out of it. We are called to drink deeply the Lord. We're called to enjoy him. We're called to remember the gospel. There, we, we get a lot out of it. I'm not denying that. That's important. However, as we gather, are we thinking of one another? Are we one anothering? Are we set on that? Are we aware of that? I mean, it comes down to the, the very place that we sit. I've mentioned this before, but, you know, I, I'd heard of someone visiting a church. I don't think it's ever happened here, at least during the past 14 years when I've been around, where someone, you know, visits a church, and they, they're, they're new, and they sit in a place, and then someone comes up, and as they expect to be greeted, someone's like, you're sitting in my seat. <laughs> really? Your seat? I mean, back centuries ago, you could actually purchase a seat. Like, you would have your name on it. We don't do that. It's not your seat. And, and wouldn't you want to be more focused on welcoming someone into God's family as opposed to having your backside on the right cushion? I mean, but, but there can be that. There, there can be a favoritism amongst us, can't there be? I mean, think about the greeting time that we have sometimes. Periodically, we'll say, hey, get up greet one another. In that moment, are you looking around for someone who's new or maybe someone who's not particularly new, but maybe no one's talking to them? Is that your mindset? Like, okay, I want to find someone who isn't really being welcomed right now so I can do that for them. Or is it more about, hey, I want to talk to them. I haven't talked to them in a while. Hey, I want to grab this person. Oh, I really like them. I don't like them so much. I'm going to ease away from them. I'm going to talk to them. So that's favoritism. And and we we need to make sure within God's family that's not how we're operating. Now, it's also possible you're the one standing there going, why is anybody greeting me? There's also a solution for you. Is this about you being greeted? Or is it about you finding someone else who isn't being greeted and greeting them? There's a a one-anothering that we're called to, and there's an other-centeredness that we're called to as God's people. And that's just when we're gathered here. The reality is there's so much throughout the week that, that would demonstrate this kind of grace, this kind of love. But really, grace is such a beautiful thing. It's depicted in the Lord's table and it's so easily distorted. Uh, there's divisions amongst them, verse 18, and there's factions in verse 19. And some would be like, well, what's the difference between the two? They're actually two sides of the same coin. Uh, the vision is the idea of I'm putting a boundary between me and you because I don't see that the way you see it. So there. Uh-huh. And the, fa- the, the, the faction is the idea of something cracking apart, coming apart because of that. And, and here's the thing. What do we find in the Lord's table? It's one body. One body. Christ's body. That's what we are. We, we need to act as though we're one, not so we can look like we're one. We need to act as though we're one because you know what? We really are one. Jesus did that. It's a done deal. We can no more make ourselves more one as God's people than we could die for the sins of God's people or cause ourselves to rise from the dead for God's people. Jesus accomplished all of that when he did those things. So we, as God's people, need to reflect who we actually are together 
as his community. So let's be aware of the distortions. There are many other ways that comes out, but let's be aware of it, brothers and sisters, and let's do everything we can to call to mind for ourselves the realities of the gospel, what that means when we're gathered, and certainly as we celebrate the gospel feast of the Lord's table. I mean, another part of this idea of communion or together would be this. If there is some kind of conflict amongst God's family, if there's someone that you're just, I'm not talking to them, I've had it with them, I'm walking away from that, I'm done. This would be the time to look, stop, evaluate your heart and go, Lord, if I need to go before this brother or sister to try to make things right, help me to do that. Because it's one body. It's communion. And we are together as God's people. So let's not try to celebrate it by strengthening division or or by living out some sort of factious kind of relationship with one another. No, we come to the Lord's table with reverence and joy and we are guarded against those distortions of the gospel. But, but, but secondly, we would also see that we need to come together with reverence and joy for the Lord's table because it is a description of God's grace. That's what it is. This is, again, a gospel feast. And, and you'll notice in verse 23, as Paul describes it, he, he, he restates what Jesus says on that night. He brings the readers back to that very significant new covenant initiating moment. You know, that's what it is. Jesus, at that time when he initiates the Lord's table at at what was known as the Last Supper in the upper room, he is bringing forward and giving a sign of the new covenant. And he's tying it back into the Passover as well. Because it was a Passover meal that they were celebrating. you'll notice it all starts with an amazing statement. Look at verse 23. It all started in the night which he was betrayed. Huh. Paul is bringing out this incredible truth that this feast of love, that that this feast of love, that this gospel feast that we're to take in, that we're to remember, that is to bring consolation to our hearts in light of the fallen world that we're in, in light of our own sin that we struggle with. It, it, the way that which this feast shows that, you know, God, God's saying, I love you. I welcome you into my table, to intimacy with me, to share together with me. All of that comes about in a time when human sin and depravity was in the midst of betraying the very one who would come to save it. Whoa. Is that the night that you would pick to most demonstrate love to someone knowing full well that they were about to betray you? What kind of love is that? It was, a, again, an evening of, of a celebration of Passover. What was the point of Passover? You'll recall, it is when God's people, Israel, are recalling to their minds, remembering 
the Exodus. They're remembering when God delivered them from Egypt. And so Jesus takes that aspect of remembrance and now he says, do this now in remembrance of me. And then so, of course, those, those who were seated there that night, they're flooding their minds undoubtedly would be, wait a minute, when we remember Passover, we're remembering our deliverance from Egypt. And that means there was the sacrifice of a lamb. Good cue. I like it. I don't know where it's coming from, though. Do you? All right. Uh, that was very beautiful. I, thank you. I think I did just say deliverance from Egypt, and then boom, it flowed in. So here we go. You know, that was pretty good. It's pretty good. We have those things happen around here, don't we? I think, wasn't there like a massive crash at one point in time? I will not refer to lightning hitting people in this sermon, I promise. Don't worry. I won't. Not going to talk about that. Don't worry about that. But that's what they would do. They, they would remember in that moment their deliverance from Egypt. And because of that, they would also remember the death of the lamb, the death of the Passover lamb that would then deliver their firstborn sons. And so the blood of the lamb would be painted on the, on the doorposts of, of the home, you'll recall. And so when Jesus goes to speak of the blood of the covenant, he is referring about that lamb's blood, that Passover lamb's blood, but he's now connecting it to himself. And those pictures are so clear for that moment. And so as Passover remembered the sacrifice of the death of the lamb, so the supper looks to Jesus and remembers the deliverance of God's people by and through the sacrifice of Christ. We find here also very, very important, something very important, that is this. There is a sacrifice of a lamb as a substitute for the people. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, I am that lamb. And I am dying as a substitute in your place. When you look at the grammar in this phrase, there's a big emphasis in verse 24 of do this in remembrance of me. He says it twice with the bread and also with the cup. And so we find again, Passover remembrance is now connected to the Lord's table's remembrance and that Christ came and died in the place of his people. And so even as we would eat the bread, we're remembering Jesus giving his body for us. And when, he, when we drink the cup, we're remembering that Jesus shed his blood for us. Verse 26 says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that means we're going to be celebrating this table until the Lord comes back. And in many ways, this table is an anticipation of his return. And when he returns, we as his people will gather for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in some ways, we're getting a taste now of what's to come. It's an anticipation of this feast to come. And so it's not just that we're looking back and remembering, and it's not just that right now we're receiving and, and yet again reminding ourselves of the covenant 
that we have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. But we're also looking forward to that return when he will come again and make all things new. And so all of this is a description of God's grace. That's what the table is. It is a description of God's grace towards a sinful people. And so we need to come with reverence and with joy. We don't want to come and not realize what we're doing. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you can think of an occasion where maybe you didn't understand the extent of it or the significance of it or what it really was. Um, And you might imagine you've been invited to a wedding or something like that. And uh, you're thinking, maybe you were told, hey, it's just a backyard, backyard wedding. No big deal. You know, and so you're like, okay, it's casual, man. It's a barbecue. That's great. I'm just going to come. I got these ripped jeans and I got a t-shirt I really like. I can get barbecue sauce on this shirt. No problem, you know. And you walk in and it turns out the backyard is like this palatial backyard. It overlooks the ocean, right? There's like this ice sculpture. (laughs) There's a string quartet. And you're like, well, I blew this one for sure. Is there a men's warehouse nearby? And are they having a sale? I really hope so. Uh, it's one thing to come to a situation like that and not understand the gravity of it or the joy of it or the wonder of it. But I think often with the Lord's table, we can do the same thing. We're, we're not understanding, really, that it's a depiction of God's grace and all that that entails. And so we can kind of go through the motions. We might not grasp the, the, the beauty of it or the weightiness of it. I think sometimes that might also come about in terms of you know, the way we treat how frequently we might do it. Um, I, I love how, you know, when you, when you think, of, well, how often should we participate in the Lord's table? The Bible gives a simple response. Often. That's it. That's all it says. It doesn't tell us that. And so when Jesus says in verse 25, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. The idea would be, however often you do it, whatever it is, it needs to be significant. And that's the trade-off. You know, in some, in some uh, ways in which churches do this, it would be every week. And that's a beautiful thing. And yet I've heard and, and even experienced you know, that that can also kind of become autopilot. For others, it's like, well, we do it, you know, um, you know, once a month kind of a thing. That's kind of more our practice. For others, they do it less. I actually heard of, a, of a one, one group. I think it's the, the Free Church of Scotland. And uh, maybe, Dan, you can help me understand if this is true. But they, they uh, Free Church of Scotland, apparently, they do it three times a year. That's it. But they use an entire month to prepare for the, each time. They, they wouldn't dream of doing it without preparing multiple weeks before they actually engage together in the table. And so again, however a church decides to do it, we're told to do it often. That's it. But certainly the point of the passage here is not so much numerically how many times per year, but it's are you doing it? Taking into account that this is a display of the grace of God towards sinners. And does that bring you to the place of reverence? And joy. So we need to come to the Lord's table with reverence and joy, not only because of the distortion of God's grace and the description of God's grace, but, but also because of the discipline of God's grace. And, and here we find Paul then gives them a, 
a warning and also kind of shows them why they are in dealing with certain difficulties at that time. Verse 20, uh, 27, he says, If anyone drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he should be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself and in so doing, eat of the bread and the cup. For he eats and drinks, drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't judge the body rightly. And you're going, okay, what, what is going on there? Without coming to the table with reverence, that would be the unworthy manner. In other words, treating it like any other meal. That's what we just talked about, that how in, in, in Corinth they would gather for the love feast first, then have the table. Well, in some way, this common everyday meal was now bleeding over into the way they treated the Lord's table. And he's saying, don't, don't you dare treat it commonly. Don't, don't treat it like every other meal. It's not. That's an unworthy manner. And if you do that, what you're doing is you are disregarding the sacrifice that Jesus has given and so you place yourself in a place of judgment from God. That's what he's saying. And, uh, and so we, we want to be careful with what he's saying here as well, because I think that, that phrase of, of coming in an unworthy manner, sometimes it, it's been applied by people to say, I've, I'm coming to communion and I can't do that because of, of my sin. And so there's sort of this introspection and there's, there's seeing if there's any sin in my life that needs forgiveness, then I can't come to the table. Well, that's not what he's saying. That's not the point. The, the point of the table is you're a sinner and you need God's forgiveness. It can't be that. So it's not, God's not saying, so clean up your act, make sure that you, know, you are scrubbed up and then come. No, God's saying come as you are. The context here, again, is, is people participating in the meal in, in, a, in a way that... Uh, is inappropriate or improper, either by treating as a common meal or by disregarding one another in the midst of celebrating the meal, right? So through that, that whole idea of favoritism and, and, and other things, division and factions. And so the corrective Paul gives us in verse 28, examine yourself. And that, that really has, again, the idea of... of coming to before the Lord in reverence and bringing your sins to him and saying, Lord, forgive me. We, we want to take a time of confession there. We want to confess our sins to him. We want to remember what he's done to save us. Um, certainly, again, the point here is, is, is remember. Uh, there's no evidence here of, of the bread or the elements becoming the body, the actual body and blood of Jesus. That's not present here at all. Um, but again, you know, as much as the bread remains the bread and, and the, the, the cup remains the cup, the point would be you are taking that time for reflection, for self-examination. You're taking that time to remember the good news of the gospel. You're taking that time to confess your sin to God. You're taking that time to come to this beautiful gospel feast and to really receive from Jesus um, that, that uh, remembrance of what he's done. And then the idea of discerning the body in verse 29, what, what, what is he talking about there? Uh, there's two possibilities. One could be that he's, it's not giving due weight to the church of Jesus as being the actual body of Christ. And so if you have divisions and factions, et cetera, et cetera, what that means is people are not seeing Christ's body 
in the way that they should. That's possible. Uh, the second view would be that they're in danger of, again, seeing this meal as just a common meal. And so you're not discerning this bread and cup as to what it actually is. But, um, you know, I, I, think, I think there's an element of both of those things here. And so we would see that as Christ died to bring forgiveness of sin and to bring a people together around this new covenant in his blood, that covenant promised by the prophet Jeremiah when he says, I'm going to give them a new covenant. Now the fulfillment of that in Jesus, the idea would be that they would never conduct this meal in a way that divides covenant members from one another somehow, and they would never treat this meal as being common. Now here's the thing. Paul goes on to say, you know what? For some of you, because of your attitude toward the Lord's table, because of not seeing it for what it is, you've experienced some dire consequences because you've trifled with it. And because of that, some of you, verse 30 would say, some of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. When Paul refers to the death of a believer, he will use that term sleep. When he refers to an unbeliever dying, it's death. To a believer, he uses the term sleep. Why? Because believers are going to rise again. But he's saying, wait a minute. You realize this. This is such a serious thing. This, this, this not dealing with the Lord's table with reverence is such a big deal that the reality is some of you are sick and weak because of it, and some of you have even died. And for us, it should cause us to stop and go, what? Are you saying that God may well take the life of a believer who treats the table in this way? And the answer is, well, actually, the principle would be if we are not going to treat God as holy, if we are not going to live in a way that glorifies him, it's possible that God can say, you know what, out of love for you. Notice, it's not out of judgment in terms of condemnation. Uh, look at verse 32. He's saying we're being disciplined by the Lord so we won't be condemned along with the world. Verse 31, if you judge yourselves rightly, we wouldn't be judged. So he's talking about that very same thing. He's saying, um, because you are not going to be judged with the world, as a believer, if you're going to refuse to honor and revere who I am, my holiness, my grace, the gospel feast of the Lord's table, then yeah, I might take you home early. For your benefit, because I love you. Out of, out of love for you, because I don't want you to take my name and drag it through the mud. I don't want you to harm the people around you anymore. And because I love you, you, again, this is not condemnation to hell. This is God taking someone out of this world for the purpose of upholding his glory and his name. And that can happen. And for us, it should cause us to fear. Now, please, this passage is not then saying, oh yeah, you know that believer who died? Must have been sin. No. We don't have any way of knowing that. That is not our deal. That's not up to us. To insert yourself on that level of being able to see things is to make yourself much more than you are. No, we don't know that. And we're not going to go around casting dispersions or suspicions or any of those things. But we need to understand this. This is a principle that God gives us. That God in his mercy and in his grace, God, who, who, gave, who gives life? God does. You know, someone say, well, then why is God murdering people? He's not murdering anybody. God never murders anybody. He can't murder anybody. 
Murder is taking of a life that is not yours to take. God is the one who gives everybody life as a gift. And in his sovereignty, out of compassion, which is really what this is, he might take you home. So what's the lesson? Treat the table with reverence. Treat God as holy. Treat the table with joy. See how significant it is and beautiful it is. For the children of God, there is no judgment on sin because all of that has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. It's already been paid once for all. But God can discipline his children for the purpose of their growth, for the purpose of of bringing glory to him and protecting the integrity of the gospel message. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. And so he says, better to judge yourself, in verse 31, than to be judged. So we need to come to the Lord's table with reverence and joy, not just because of the distortion of God's grace, the description of God's grace, and the discipline of God's grace, but lastly also because of devotion in God's grace. In verses 33 and 34, Paul just says, look, I'm going to give you two more directives to to hold onto the table in a way that glorifies God, to really receive this gospel feast in the way that God's intended. One would be this. When you gather, wait for everybody else. Pretty simple. Wait. Verse 33. Wait for everybody. Why? Because it is communion. It's to be done together. You don't need to just think of yourself. And then secondly, hey, if you are hungry, verse 34, just eat at home. Don't make your hunger pangs and the Lord's table be something that's connected. Instead of that, deal with your hunger at home. By the way, this, this directive is most likely toward the wealthy. Why? Because the wealthy were the most likely to have a home where they could do that. And they would have those provisions. And so he's saying, please, be devoted to one another. There's a devotion in God's grace to one another. As, God, as you've received God's grace in Jesus, now you share that grace with other people. And so those elitists who were enjoying this meal while others went hungry, they should regard the Lord's Supper as something different. There's a remembrance. There's a gathering together. And the point would be that the poor and the rich alike eat side by side at the same time. I think uh, for us, there also can be a corrective because I think in our culture, let's face it, we live in a hyper kind of individualized culture where it's all about me and what I want. And here, Paul's saying the heart of the Lord's table is communion together with one another. And so the supper happens when you come together. Think about it. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, what did he pray? That his people would become perfectly one. That God's love for the Son and for his people would be seen by those who don't yet know him. So the call is to participate in this covenant meal 
with a full recognition that we're all sinners, that we all needed Christ to die for us, and that in his death and resurrection, we are brought by him into his family, one body, the church. And so let's learn and, and, and hold on to this beautiful thing called the Lord's table. And I feel like God's bringing us through as a church family just different elements of what it means to be gathered together. Last week, we were talking along this very same topic about the issues that they were having in the, in the worship service gathered. Uh, today, he's doing the same thing with us. And let's make sure we enjoy the feast as it's intended, with reverence and with great joy. Um, so at, right now, we're going to transition into a time of the Lord's table. We can't talk about the Lord's table and not partake of the Lord's table together. And, and as we want to be really clear with this, everybody is invited to this table, but they're invited in different ways. So if, if you're not yet a believer, if you've not yet come to Christ, then we invite you to come to the Lord's table, but not to eat and to drink of the elements, but instead to put your trust in Jesus, the one who died for sinners, the one symbolized by the bread, which is his body, and the cup, which is his blood. And if you're ready to trust in Jesus today, it would be just to take this moment to say to the Lord, to say to God, Lord, I am a sinner. I admit that to you. I have not honored you in my, in my thoughts and in what I've said and in how I've treated other people. And, and the exact words you pray, that's not, that's not the point. The point is the intent of your heart. You're not saved by saying a prayer. You're saved by trusting in Jesus alone. And that would be the invitation to you now to, to do that very thing. Um, if you're a Christian who um, has professed faith in, in, in Christ, but you've not yet been baptized as a believer, you also are invited to come. Not to eat and to drink, but to remember what Jesus has done for you through the gospel. And, and to trust in that reality that the, the bread and cup symbolize. And, and really to even take a moment to, to consider whether or not uh, you should be baptized as a believer. And uh, um, you, might th you might ask, well, hey, why doesn't Paul address that in, in this passage? He doesn't say anything about baptism. You know why? Because in the first century church, there, was, there wouldn't be a person claiming to be a believer who hadn't been baptized. Uh, that it would be a walking contradiction to them. So of all the problems the ch church in Corinth had, that was not one of them. Uh, they understood that. But... Uh, this would be a time for you to come before God and, and, and to remember Christ's sacrifice for you and, and the, 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 his body broken and his blood shed for your forgiveness of sins. If you're a believer who's been baptized as a believer, then yes, this is a time for you to eat and drink at the Lord's table, to trust in uh, what Christ has done. And as we do so, let's make sure we do celebrate this gospel feast together in a way as described so clearly in what Paul's just written uh, that we would take time to examine ourselves. So this is that time to go before God and, and, and to, to say to the Lord, Lord, am I walking with you in a way that reflects the wonder of what you've accomplished to save me? And are there areas where perhaps I've spoken or thought or engaged with others or whatever it would be, thought, word, deed, ways that I've sinned against you. If I've not done what, what, what you've called me to do in an area, this is that time in silence to confess that to him. Um, and then also, as we do this, let's also praise him and thank him for calling us together into his body. 
I, I love just looking around this room. I'm seeing people from all kinds of different walks of life. And I rejoice to consider the reality that we would not be interacting together, most of us, because we have the same affinity, we have the same likes, dislikes, we have the same backgrounds. No, what holds us together, what brings us together is the work of the living God through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's why we're together. And so let's keep that in mind too as we go before the Lord in silence. Lord, as we come to you, we are struck by the reality that you initiated this wonderful gospel feast on the very night you were betrayed. And it wasn't because you were naive. It wasn't because you didn't know. No, you knew full well our evil, the way in which our sin destroys and the way in which even one who called himself your friend was about the business of bringing you to your death. All for 30 pieces of silver, all because he did not truly want you. And yet, Lord, in this moment, you are saying, I'm giving myself for you. Remember, remember, remember. In the same way that you remembered Passover and the Passover lamb and my deliverance of you from Egypt, remember now that that was pointing to this new covenant. And so, Lord, as we take this bread now together, we remember and we give you thanks with great joy. Amen. As Paul described for us in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A part of this table is not just looking back and remembering and it's not just participating together in this gospel feast. It's also anticipating the feast to come. Jesus is coming back soon. And so let's anticipate that together. This, in many ways, is is a foretaste of that great meal. An anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so with joy now, let's enjoy the cup together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel feast that we have enjoyed in Christ. We thank you for your provision of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Lord, we thank you for this time to enjoy Jesus and all he has done to make us right with you. We praise you in our risen Savior's name. Amen.